0: Hey, seasoned athletes, I'm Robin Leggett, and this is episode 36 of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast and the kickoff of our new fall season. I am so happy to be back with new episodes and a new crop of inspiring athletes over age 40 ready to share their stories and advice with you. We're here to prove one story at a time that age does not have to prevent you from achieving your bold athletic and fitness goals. To learn more about this podcast and see show notes from this or any episode, visit Seasoned athlete.me. And if you like what you hear, I would love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends, and please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Before we get to today's guest, you may have noticed that we are rocking some new theme music around here. During our hiatus, I decided to spiff things up, and that included getting some brand spanking new original theme music. Gone is the happy-go-lucky tune that you may have also heard on a handful of other podcasts if you're an active podcast listener. Now we have something that I think reflects the badass nature of the athletes we feature on the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Our new music comes to us courtesy of one of my oldest friends, an amazingly talented musician by the name of Jason Achilles. Learn more about him at jasonachilles.com. And now it's time to get to know today's featured seasoned athlete, ultra runner Charlie Engel. I had the honor of chatting with Charlie a little while back, and we ended up having one of those really great conversations that also turned out to be really difficult to edit. So today's episode won't feature an everyday seasoned athlete. We're just going to get right to the main interview. You may want to be ready to take some notes because Charlie drops some serious seasoned athlete knowledge in today's episode. Let's get to know Charlie Engel. Hi, Charlie. Hey,
1: how's it going?
0: Oh, great. How are you doing today?
1: I am pretty darn fantastic actually so it's hot but uh i don't don't (laughs) mind hot so it's good
0: that's good and based on uh some of the things i've read about you heat is something you have had to tolerate in your many adventures which we're going to get into but first are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today
1: i am so ready to offer up everything i have
0: that is so good to hear you are charlie angle of chapel hill north carolina you're a husband a father a writer a runner And a recovering addict. You've run across deserts. You've summited ice-covered volcanoes. You swam with crocodiles and even served a stint in federal prison. But your greatest challenge, as you say, is the challenge you take every single day, and that is sobriety. Instead of trying to kill your addictive nature, you instead channel it into positive, purpose-filled pursuits. And those pursuits have literally had you running all over the globe. You've been clean and sober since 1992. Your running pursuits have been the subject of multiple documentaries. And in 2016, you released your first book, aptly titled Running Man. You are, as you describe yourself, an addict who runs and a runner who writes. Is there anything vital personally, professionally, or from your athletic life that you'd like to take a quick moment to fill in?
1: Wow, that was the best intro I've ever had. So no, I think you you covered the basics and I have no doubt that we will we will do the deep dive here in a moment. So thanks for asking.
0: Absolutely. And I'm excited to do that. From here, I'm going to ask the big question that I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time?
1: I am 55.
0: Fantastic. So let's start from the beginning. What did your early athletic life look like? Did you play sports or were you active growing up?
1: Man, mine. I was very active. I grew up in a a country here, as we say, in North Carolina. And my parents, though, were incredibly young. So my parents were actually both 18, 19 years old. So uh, they were theater people and by no means athletes. Uh, And so, you know, I grew up with a little bit of soccer when I was a little kid. But I mean, it was, you know, you think about it, this was the, you know, late 60s and early 70s. And so soccer was still like a truly a a foreign sport. And uh, beyond that, I really didn't do much until I moved in. Uh, My parents were divorced, actually, when I was young. So I moved in with my father and And uh, and he was an athlete. He was a basketball player. And and I went from kind of doing nothing to playing every single sport that I possibly could in high school. So I did run. And I think a a tidbit people find information uh, in uh, informational is that my uh, my grandfather was actually the head track coach at. University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill for about forty years. When I was when I was young, he died unfortunately when I was young. But it did it did do what we know happens. It it imprinted on me and my my family. Basically, told me that I was going to be a runner, and uh, as it turns out, they were they were mostly right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so I ran all through high school and and uh, I played football and basketball and baseball and kind of did the whole the uh, whole high school experience and went to college at UNC Chapel Hill and and actually went there to play football and never played a single down. But, um, you know, I was a I was a pretty slow footed, reasonably stubborn athlete.
0: So let's talk about the journey to addiction and uh, and how running and athletics sort of played a role. In concert with that, Uh, because you you continued to run even when you were in the throes of addiction, right? I did. And, And,
1: you know, and I think I think it's a it's a valid point to say that I so I went to college. I'm a 17 year old freshman. And, you know, I had had enough of a stellar high school career academically, athletically, every other way that I I. I say this tongue in cheek, but I, it's like I expected there to be a welcome Charlie banner on my <laughs> dorm when I got there. You know, we're, we're so glad you're here. Our lives can start now. <laughs> and, and of course I get to a school like UNC and I find out within the first, you know, week, uh, that what I am actually is pretty darn average and uh, everybody there, the 4,000 shiny new freshmen are all smart and athletic. And, and, you know, I lose my way pretty quickly. And what I figure out is I turned 18 uh, September of that year. So I, I, and drinking age was still 18. And I discovered pretty quickly that what I was, was, uh, a, an all American first team, uh, consumer of alcohol. And, you know, and it, and it was, it was the first real experience I had with my my addictive nature and you know, it it was tough. I mean, my friends, everybody partied in school as they still do today, but I was that guy who wondered why everybody else was going to bed at two o'clock and getting up and going to their classes. And, you know, and for me, I, I, you know, I fell apart over the first three years in college. So it was a, it was a tough time.
0: So you found that, you know, you're, you're fairly intensely into athletics and that sort of translated into your relationship with alcohol.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, and look, what happened for me is even all the way back then in college, you know, I felt I would, I would screw up. I'd go out and get blitzed and and feel terrible and and cocaine i call the 80s the cocaine decade so you know i got pretty heavily into cocaine and and i would quite literally stay up all night partying and i would go to the track at at the on campus and i would run you know eight miles ten miles twelve i mean i would i would run myself nearly to death trying to i think in a sense you know purge and and i I just didn't understand what was going on with me and I didn't know how to get out of it. It's not like it is today where there's a, you know, there's a lot of information, whether kids choose to use it or not is a different matter. But, you know, in, in 1980 and 81, you know, there really wasn't on campus a lot of, you know, here's what you do. If you, if you see that you've got a problem with alcohol, there wasn't anybody to talk to.
0: Yeah. It was just part of the culture at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well then I, you know, and look, it continued, I'll. I'll cut to the chase on that part of my life. You know, I basically spent the next, I I left college at 21 and I spent the next eight years until I was 29, really just repeating this pattern of moving somewhere, getting a great job, being the top salesman, kicking ass. Six months later, you know, not showing up for work uh, because of drinking or drugs and um, you know, not doing any of the things I needed to. And, and, and as I like to say, lather, rinse, repeat.
0: Yeah. You were living that wolf of Wall Street life, basically.
1: Absolutely. I was. And, and, and the way that I overcame, you know, I wasn't, people have this, this, uh, picture in their minds very often of what an addict looks like. And, you know, and I was, I was the top salesman wherever I was. And I would, uh, mostly out of desperation, not out of desire, because I, I sort of assumed that, you know, they can't fire the top salesman. And that that actually turned out not to be correct. <laughs>
0: but, <laughs> if he's um, if the I, top salesman's a mess. <laughs>
1: right. If yeah. he's a pain in the ass more than right. he is, uh, you know, good for the company, then he will, in fact, be fired. And so but I, I did it. You know, I look looking back. I understand that my goal was to balance the bad behavior with overachieving, on the other hand, and finding a way to, to really make it difficult for people to criticize me because if I was buying a house and a car and getting married and doing the things that, that normal people do, then, you know, I must not have a problem. And, you know, at 29 years old, my first son was born and, and Brett's birth, you know, I thought that would finally be my, my savior, like that he was going to save me from myself. And I tried to quit you know, I even had a really terrible joke. I basically said quitting's easy. You know, I've done it a hundred times. And, you know, it's this idea that I, you know, every other time I would say, okay, that's it. I'm never doing that again. I quit. And any addict or any person that has an addict in their life understands what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the intentions are there, but unfortunately a few days later, that person feels better all of a sudden. And, you know, this time I can only have two beers. I'm sure of it, and it always leads to the same place. But anyway, at 29, you know, I found myself in, in working in Wichita, Kansas, and and my son is two months old, and you know, he comes to visit, and I've got this amazing, you know, hope and desire to be to be sober because I've got to take care of this this baby, and and uh, it was the greatest week of my of my life to that point. Is is having Brett there with me, and I, I, I dropped he and his mom off at the airport, and inexplicably, I, you know, I drove straight to the hood and spent the next six days, you know, smoking crack and drinking, and and uh, that ended with the police going through my car, and there's three bullet holes in my car, and 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 they were put there, you know, by somebody trying to shoot me, yeah. and you know, and it was really that day. You know, that that evening, sitting there on the ground outside a Dumpy Motel watching the scene and where I realized that no, you know, my son couldn't save me. Nobody was coming to save me. And if I didn't get a handle on this, I wasn't going to live. And, you know, so I went to an A meeting that night and I got up the next morning and I put my running shoes on and, you know, I went for a horrendously bad three-mile run. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, I spent the next three years doing that exact thing. For three straight years, I did not miss a single day of going to a meeting or running. Wow. And, and slowly I started to build a life. And, and in that period, I ran, you know, I ran more than 30 marathons. And because, as I like to say, because clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control. But, um <laughs> you know yeah but
0: you had to to do something to replace it some people eat some people take up smoking cigarettes you just ran all the time
1: I needed both things I needed I needed traditional treatment like AA Mm -hmm. and I needed to run because I I thought I needed to run the addict out of me to like take a scalpel and cut that part of my personality away and it took me those three years to figure out that actually my my addict, the addiction part of me is actually the best part of me. And if it if it weren't for that part, you know, I'd probably be sitting on the sofa with a, a you know, a channel changer in my hand. And that would be the extent of what I did. And yeah. so I'm grateful for it. But I but I also have to, you know. Uh, Twenty six years later, I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I still have to manage my addict.
0: It never fully goes away.
1: Never, never.
0: You're always a recovering addict. No, re- An addict is never fully recovered, and it's for you. It was. It's about kind of forming that relationship with the addict part of you and channeling it into something different.
1: No, you nailed it. And I, and I'm, you know, yeah, I am happy to say that. You know, I mean, if I could take a pill right now and not be an addict, I wouldn't do it because it's. It's who I am. And I and I know that those parts of my personality drive me to be a pain in the ass in some things and and really successful at some things. And and sometimes those are the same things. But, uh, you know, I've, I've found my way. You
0: hear the stories of high performers becoming addicts, and there's probably something to that, that 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 kind of personality that leads someone to be a high performer can also lead them down the road of addiction. And it sounds like that. Was the case with you, and continues to be the case with you, except that you you channel it now into something different.
1: Absolutely, and now I, you know, what I understand about myself is that I need I, I need challenge. I need the easier, softer way doesn't work for me. And you know, when I I do a lot of speaking, and when I and I found this out just sort of naturally, I found that when I told stories. I mean frankly nobody wants to hear somebody stand up on stage and talk about how awesome they are. Right. <laughs> I I'd, I'd I'd rather stand up there and and sure talk about some successes, but the struggle is way more interesting. And you know, I encourage people all the time myself these days to you know, they're training for a big race or something and a lot of their goal tends to be that they want the race to be as perfect as possible as as easy as possible, if you will. And and I always say, you know, what's the fun in that? Like,
0: yeah. Why would we even do it? Why would we yeah, challenge ourselves in that way if it's easy?
1: Well, the stories we all tell when the race is over is, you know, I I puked at mile 12 or I got (laughs) a blister or some, you know, some guy tripped me or, you know, we tell the stories of hardship and those are the ones that, that form our, our, who we are. And, and so, You know, I always say that some of our, for all of us, you know, hardship is, is partially self-inflicted and and partially completely out of our control. Like, no, you know, just hits us from out of nowhere. And, and most are a combination of the two, you know, we actually saw it coming if we were paying attention, but, um, right. You know, we've got to welcome hardship and actually look for, um, you know, use it as yeah. as energy towards what the next thing's going to be.
0: Kind of along those lines. Um, I read an interesting story about how you accidentally ended up running your first ultra marathon in Australia in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you share that story? Because I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, well, that doesn't it, I always say that it, it it's it busts me for being uh, clearly I'm not a genius. So Actually, I, what's funny is I, I, so I signed up for this race. I'm working in Australia and I signed up for a 5k. I started running. So I'm working in Australia. I'm about four years clean and sober. Every time I go somewhere, I find an AA meeting to to go to, you know, and I find a running group to run with. Those are my, you know, they're the stalwart things in my life. And so that's what I do when I go to Brisbane, Australia. And I, one day we finish a run with my running group and I'm back into the store. And of course this is nine, I can't, it's 95 or 96. And we can you know, there's no, there's no internet, you know, I'm not looking up a race, but they on the bulletin board. The old fashioned bulletin board is, Hey, here's a race this weekend, 5k, you know, and here's the directions. And like, literally you tear off the piece of paper that has the directions on it. And so on that weekend, I, I, I get in my car and I've got to drive like three hours to the start of this race out in the middle of a a rainforest, And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I accidentally, um, I hadn't seen a kangaroo the whole time I'd been in Australia for the first, you know, week or 10 days. And the the, the first one I see, I run over it with my car and (laughs) it's like, you know, and I, there's a longer version of this story in my, in my book that I, I, I get out of the car and, the kangaroo is not dead. He's just dazed. And anyway, he gets up and runs away. And all his friends come rescue him, actually, and he gets up and runs away. So anyway, I'm I'm shaken. I'm an animal animal lover, and I I continue on towards the start of the race. And I you know I get to the little desk, and there's a very cute little girl there at the desk, and she's like, "Oh, you're here for the race?" You know, she gives me my number, and I get all signed up and everything. And and I hear these guys talking over on the side and they're like going, man, you know, mate, I sure hope I can finish this race, you know, before dark. And, and it's going to be a hot one out there. And I'm thinking to myself, man, these Aussies are slow. <laughs> How out of shape <laughs> are they? Right. What are they going to crawl? And uh, I literally, I laugh out loud, not really meaning to it. A guy looks at me and he's like, so, you know, do you run a lot of 50 Ks, mate? And I'm like, 50 k. What's he talking about? And I, I immediately break into like a sweat. And and I walk back over to the table and the cute girl. And I'm like, hey, can you, is there a map of this course? I just want to see where I'm going. And sure enough, she hands me a map. and right there in big letters on the top. It says, you know, Nenango ring for us, 50K. It's actually a 52K. 52K race. And I look down at my number. Like literally my number is pinned to the front of me. And it says the same thing. <laughs> And it's like, it just, at that point in my life, I was a marathoner and it just didn't occur to me that people actually ran farther than a marathon. I mean, I was like, why would you?
0: <laughs> right. Who would well, do such a thing?
1: Right. That's crazy. And, um, anyway, I, I decide I've, I've run all, I mean, I've driven all the way out here three hours. I ran over, you know, Bambi of Australia and I'm, I'm, this is a loop course. So there's three loops of like, so 50k 52k is like 32 miles so the three loops are a little over 10 miles each and I decide I'm just going to run one loop and I'll quit like that's it I'm 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 going to run way farther than I planned on for that day but that's all I'm going to do and so I get out there and I'm I'm running and it's beautiful and just stunning and I'm hearing birds I've never heard before and you know, the, it's a small crowd—150 people, I think, something like that—and and, and uh, we're out there running. And I, I come back over the final rise. I complete my ten point something miles, and I hear the announcer going, "Oh, here comes the Yank! Here comes the Yank!" You know, <laughs> he's uh, you know he's in tenth place, and I'm thinking, great, fantastic! I'm now representing all of North America. And like I'm the only non Aussie in the race and I'm quitting. I'm done. Actually he doesn't change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I've come, come across the finish line and of course the uh you know, the the cute girl from registration walks over to me and she's like and this is the stupidity of the male uh, species, you know, she's like, you're going to keep going, aren't you? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for you, anything. <laughs> right. Because we're just, you know, stupid yeah. that way. And, you know, <laughs> heaven forbid, we, you know, humiliate ourselves and say, no, no, I'm done for the day. But anyway, I decide to continue, but I am still going to quit this race. Like I'm, I now make a decision. I'm going to run to my car and, and quit. Just
0: keep going. And, Get out of there. Right.
1: So there's nothing brave about what I'm doing. And, uh, I'll cut, you know, cut to the finish here. So I, I, I end up finishing loop two and it is at that moment that I, I sort of have this moment and I'm like, wow, you know what? If I just do one more loop and I finish this thing, I had no intention of being out there running that far. If I just keep going, I will have run farther than I've ever run in my life. And, and that seems like something that I shouldn't waste this opportunity. I should do it. And I come back around on the third loop. Um, I'm finishing this race, and you know I recognize that I've achieved something. There's an old uh, Paulo Coelho quote from uh, one of his books, where he, he basically talks about, uh, you know, sometimes the universe does for you what you can't do for yourself. And I cross the finish line, and I end up winning the race, and um, it's the most unintentional thing I've ever done. And There wasn't anything brave about it. I basically spent the first, you know, several hours trying desperately to quit (laughs) and somehow just continued going. And and it was that race, though, afterwards and sort of the 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 afterglow where I I said, you know, out loud to myself in the car driving back, you know, wow. You know what? I really want to see how far I can go and that sort of laid the groundwork for the rest of my you know ultra athletic career that turns you into an ultra runner it it did at least in name if not in reality right so
0: i just i i love that you tr- you were just looking for all sorts of ways to quit this race and you ended up winning i've never heard yeah. that before i've never heard of a race that anybody had run that they were looking for multiple ways out while yeah. they were running the race and ended up winning. So yeah, clearly this was this was the right path for you. You just kinda had to stumble into it on accident.
1: Well, I I could tell the story much more uh courageously, I think. I could spin it some way. But I, I think that you know, again, I think all of us we find ourselves in positions sometimes where we didn't plan on a certain circumstance and and as as I love to say, it doesn't matter what happens, it only matters what you do about it. And uh, through a a combination of stubbornness and, um, ego also played, played a real role. You know, a combination of those things drove me to do something that I had no, I actually didn't know that I could do it. Like I didn't know that I was capable of that. And, You know, I got through it and I figured out that, okay, you know, I'm not just capable of that. You know, maybe I'm capable of more. So let's let's find out.
0: Right. And and what a great experience to go into a race not expecting to do it and not really spending a whole lot of time anticipating it, thinking about whether or not you can, stressing about it. You go into it and you learn this part of yourself. You learn this new thing about yourself when you're not even you know, you didn't even plan for it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, it's very well said. Thank you. So
0: as I briefly mentioned in your bio, you did serve time in a federal prison between was it 2010 and 2012?
1: Yeah. So I actually went in and in on uh, on Valentine's Day of 2011, which is. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah. A wonderful way to Wonderful holiday. Thing. Well,
0: you know, you didn't have to wait in line. <laughs> didn't have to wait for, for dinner at a restaurant. It gets crowded. It, you know, the holiday's a pain. I didn't.
1: I didn't. I was a little concerned. My only real concern that day was with not being someone Valentine on my first day in prison. But, oh, uh, you know, not not that there's anything wrong with that. But right, I was, you, you know, know. <laughs> looking for that. Yeah. I, I I like the fact that I hopefully I can make I, I like to make light of the circumstance. So I'm sure, sure. your your listeners are right now going, what the? But, you know, if
0: you can't look back and, and find humor in, in the dark parts of your life, you know, yeah. it, it helps to do that sometimes. So no doubt. can you talk about the time you spent there and how you were able to keep running while incarcerated?
1: Yeah. Well, and I I would be remiss. People can obviously look me up. If if people Google me, they can find a million stories about what happened. And I I do feel compelled to at least say the incredibly short version of this was I was charged with allegedly overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005. So let's just put it that way. And I, I fought it very hard in court and ended up on the front page of the New York times a couple of times in a very high profile case. And, you know, it was, it was what it was. And I ended up, uh, with a 21 month sentence, 18 months of which I served in Beckley, West Virginia. And I think the, you know, at that point in my life, I was 19 years sober. (laughs) So, the thought of something like this happened, you know, go back to my twenties and all kinds of things could have happened.
0: Right. That, that you might've expected it, you know, at this point it probably was a big surprise for you.
1: No doubt. And so, so uh, this goes in that category of, of, well, probably somewhere in the middle of self-inflicted and uh, completely out of the blue and not my fault. And I'm glad to say that thanks to sobriety and thanks to um, a lot of years of running and of of understanding what it's like to fight through difficult circumstances, I decided that I would approach incarceration the same way I approached everything else, basically with a, an open mind and uh, sort of an attitude of exploration. And OK, because I, no amount of fair or unfair, you know, just or unjust, that wasn't going to change the circumstance. So I recognized very quickly that my happiness under these terrible circumstances was still entirely up to me and within my control. And so I went in there and I did what I always do. I started running. And and I found through running in an incredibly limited circumstance. You know, I was able to go out into the rec yard every day and run around this quarter mile, I called it a goat path. You know, we were on top of a blown up mountain in rural West Virginia. And, you know, this path basically went around the entire rec yard and it was all, it was pretty much exactly a quarter mile. So, I was out there every single day running around in a circle with no other choice. Uh, Although I will also say there were times when it was prison. And so we were in lockdown at times, which basically meant that no one left the housing unit. And sometimes for days on end. And I ran in place in my cell for up to eight hours on those days.
0: Talk about, you know making the best of your circumstances and, and figuring out how to, how to react as opposed to letting life dictate how you're going to live it.
1: The thing, first of all, that I, I two things happened very quickly. Number one, uh, so I'd done this race called Badwater many years in a row out in Death Valley, and some of your listeners may know this race. It's 135 miles through Death Valley, and it's widely regarded as, you know, one of the toughest races on the planet. And um, I picked up a Runner's World magazine early on when I was w- – you know when I was in prison, and I and I realized Badwater was coming up in a few months, and I decided that I was going to run my own version of Badwater uh, while being locked up. That I would I would run 135 miles on the same day around this crappy little track, and to prepare for that, I you know I started to run, and and in there I would say. There were about 450 guys uh, in this facility, and there were probably three or four regular runners. So I, I, I got to know them pretty quickly. A lot of guys, you know, did some walking and a, a variety of, of things while they were in there. You know, people do try to stay in some kind of shape. But what I found was, <laughs> very interestingly, people, they, not that they made fun of me, but the amount of running that I was doing was not normal for this place. For sure. And 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 I sort of liked the fact that I was not that I wasn't normal. I mean, I was a middle aged guy in there and really nobody was looking to mess with me, but I, I think I actually came off as a little bit crazy.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> it was probably good for you. That right. in your favor.
1: Right. That was my version of punching the biggest guy in the nose in there, which <laughs> which wouldn't have which wouldn't have done me anything other than just, you know, get me beaten up. But right. uh and so, uh, but what I found interesting is one of the time guys started to come up to me in the you know in the in the line for lunch or uh, dinner or in other places uh, you know in the compound and ask me about running and and usually they would say I've never been a runner but I've always you know I've always wanted to be and in there nobody really knew who I was they didn't know what I did you know who I was on the outside people eventually found out that I was a a moderately well-known ultra runner, but, but it was interesting. By the time I left 18 months later, um, I had more than 50 guys running with me every day and I had more, more, I had 11 guys who lost more than a hundred pounds while, you know, working out with me. And, uh, my favorite story is I, actually in the first few weeks, I decided I would do, I, I knew the Bikram did you know, the hot yoga routine, mm-hmm. and because I'd done a fair amount of Bikram yoga. And so I went out on the softball field by myself and did um, my yoga routine. And just for the record, you know, for anybody listening out there, hopefully you never find yourself in federal prison. But if you do, I don't recommend doing yoga by yourself on the softball field. <laughs>
0: Why is that? So
1: I was ridiculed. I was ridiculed just a bit. And uh, that was uh, it was funny. but, But by the time I left, literally, I had 25 guys doing yoga with me three days a week, too. And, you know, and so it was it was this very interesting metamorphosis for me and for a lot of guys in there where, you know, where I did figure out that, you know, people people want help. I mean, you're a coach and you've helped mm-hmm. people your, you know, your entire professional life. And my hope has been a, my help has been a lot more about this idea of attraction rather than promotion. Yeah. In other words, for me, I don't want to go, whether it's about sobriety or running or yoga, I'm not prone to go up to people and say, Hey, you should come do this with me. I believe much more in I should go do it and people yes. will find their their way to me if they want to know more about it. As long as I make myself open and available, they'll they'll come ask questions. And yeah. and that's the way I went about it. And you know I did my 18 months. Um I also, you know, I learned one other not surprising lesson and that was that while I was in a situation that I felt was unfair, I was locked up. I got 18 months of an up-close view of our criminal justice system where, you know, <laughs> a whole lot of people, you know, were were far more mistreated than I was and and in terrible situations with 25-year sentences for small drug possession and you know, I know that that isn't this podcast, but it's something that everyone should understand. That um, locking up our drug addicts in this country is not only costly financially; it's a it's a poor fiscal decision, but it it's uh, it's an incredibly destructive thing from a humanitarian standpoint. And you know, we have to find a better way. And
0: most, you know, most prisons don't have the benefit of you being there, leading by example and attracting people to make positive change no, in their lives. Yeah,
1: Absolutely, they don't.
0: So while you were in prison, you earned the nickname Running Man from your fellow mm-hmm. inmates, and that went on to become the title of your memoir. Can you share a bit about how this book came about and what it's all about?
1: Yeah, so Running Man is a, um, I always tell people it's not a running book. I'm happy to say it's not a running book. When I signed on with Simon & Schuster, I, I made it clear that, you know, I wasn't into writing a book of stories about you know, my running triumphs or even my running failures. I I wanted it to be a book, more traditional memoir in, in the sense that it would be of, you know, about my life and the first, you know, the first, not even third, but you know, the first quarter of it is about getting sober and the middle portion is, is all about adventures and adventure racing and running around the planet. You know, and the last part is about this, at least mostly about uh, incarceration and what I learned, you know, from that. But the through line, the through line is running and and what I learned from running and what I still continue to learn today from running. and and it all revolves again around this idea that all the best lessons are learned from the most difficult things we face. And I learned early on that it was important for me to, put myself in a situation where I was very likely to encounter hardship and that might be a hundred mile race. It might be a run. You know, I did a run in 2007 all the way across the Sahara desert. And I I think that's probably the linchpin to the book and to my life. Um, I became the first person to ever cross the entire Sahara desert, nearly 5,000 miles on foot. And to do that, I had to run nearly two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days without wow. taking a single day off. And, you know, we, we made a, Matt Damon was actually the executive producer of this project. And, uh, he narrated a film called running the Sahara, which is still out there on iTunes. If anybody's interested, um, you know, and it, and, I think that this, this run changed my life in so many ways. A, it, it, it taught me that I was, in fact, capable of far more than I thought. But it also, I think it, it did what happened so often to all of us in our lives. You know, I, I was excited about this idea. I trained, I prepared. So this is like starting a business, starting a family, anything that someone's trying out there. You know, the run begins, you know, in Senegal and a week into this thing, we have run out of food. We're out of water. We've been hopelessly lost a couple of times. My, my two fellow runners that are out there with me are both on IVs laying under acacia trees. And I'm looking around thinking, this is going to be the shortest big expedition in, in history. If I, if I don't figure something out and. I think what I figured out in that moment was not, I think I know what I figured out in that moment was this, I had been envisioning and and look, you as a coach probably help people envision occasionally success, but for me, I had been thinking about the meaning behind this run and I had been thinking about finishing and diving into the red sea you know, over 4,000 miles away, like from the beginning. And I forgot that what I needed to do was the hard work in front of me on a daily basis. And on that day, you know, seven days into this run, I said, "Okay, I need to do this run the same way I do sobriety. This needs to get back to the one day at a time idea. And the next day I woke up at 4 a.m. like usual. And all I focused on was running a marathon that day. Uh, that morning rather. So before lunch, I needed to finish a marathon and I did that. I took a break, I ate lunch, I took a short nap and I got up in the afternoon and I said, okay, now I have to focus on running a second marathon before dinner. And I did that. And I took, you know, I had dinner and I took my little thin foam mat and I laid it on the sand and I, I, I looked up at, a billion stars because there wasn't a, an electric light within 500 miles. And I, you know, and I was grateful. I gave, I gave thanks to, you know, the universe for the ability to be out there suffering as a sober person, you know, and doing this thing. And, and one day at a time, one step at a time, I did actually make my way with my teammates across the entire Sahara desert. And, So the book really revolves around, I think the book revolves around that adventure, even though that's, that's only one of, of, uh, probably a dozen big adventures that I touch on. Um, some of them are huge failures. You know, the very next year I turned around and tried to set a a record for the fastest crossing of the United States on foot and completely disintegrated, you know, less than three weeks into the run. But you know, disintegration brings lessons of its own, right? What was the biggest lesson from that? Yeah, well, you know what? The biggest lesson on that one was that I still had a chance to do an amazing thing. I had a co-runner in that run also, um, a guy named Marshall Ulrich, who's 10 years older than I am. And he continued running across the U.S. And I got on a bike and I, I, I wanted to take my ball and go home you know, but I continued on instead and just not what I planned on. And I stopped at a dozen schools for special needs kids. And I ended up with this amazing relationship with these kids across the country that, um, frankly could care less if I was running across the country. They were just glad I was at their school to run with them. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't, you know, injured myself. And, you know, so one path, absolutely opens up another one, if you're paying attention. I also should say, you know, like for that run, I worked with the United Way, so there was a greater cause. With my run across the Sahara, and I think this is probably the greatest legacy, much more so than the run itself, um, I co-founded with Matt Damon something called H2O Africa, which today is known as water.org. And so Matt Damon, if you ever see him on an advertisement for Lately, he's been doing this stuff with uh, Stella Artois Beer Company. and But Water.org is now the biggest water nonprofit in the world. And it's an amazing nonprofit that serves hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people with clean water. And none of those people know who I am.
0: <laughs> right. He, he's the face.
1: Right. He's the face. Most yeah. of them don't know who he is either over there. Right. That's true. About. What they care about is clean water. and For sure. But this... This crazy idea of running across the Sahara Desert, which was nonsensical at its best, you know, and seemed impossible. But that crazy idea, you know, led to the creation of this nonprofit that serves so many people. And, you know, I take a lot of uh, pride and, you know, I'm just very grateful that I had a chance to be involved with that.
0: What I love about the story about uh, Traversing America, um, just the the power of adaptation the power of the ability to to adapt when things are challenging when things are tough as opposed to quitting and i love the good that came from that adaptation
1: man i so totally agree and i'm sure that's you know part of your coaching philosophy but people yeah people have to understand that frankly adaptation is the key to everything is it not i mean for sure how many things actually go the way we laid them out on, on the map or in our business plan or, and what fun would it be if they did? How boring would that be? I mean, I, I always say, you know, I'm, I'm as an older athlete, in fact, the, the place that I can excel, I'm not going to beat. usually, I'm not going to beat the young guys If I'm running a hundred mile race. That's a very runnable flat race. I'm not winning that race because somebody faster than me is going to be out there. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I look for races that are challenging in other ways, mountains, weather, heat, you know, whatever it is, because the the benefit of being an older athlete is that I may not have seen it all, but I've seen a hell of a lot. And I know what it feels like to fall apart. I know what it feels like to fall apart in a race. I know what it feels like to have my life fall apart. <laughs> and the answer you know who we are. In fact, is is really only revealed when things do fall apart. And so I look at that as an opportunity to adapt, as you just said. Adaptation is everything. So I've got to find a new way to get past that moment. It, usually, it is just a moment, especially in a race where we think we can't go on, or we, or maybe we don't even want to go on. But if you can just get past that. That debilitating moment um, usually things will turn around
0: and the moment always feels bigger than it actually is
1: absolutely
0: and that that's so funny because you just you just answered my next question which which was uh, the unique challenges or benefits that you find as an older athlete uh, training and competing at the level you do and it sounds like the ability to adapt and and the knowledge of how to do that and the moments when it it is required Maybe a benefit to you as an older athlete. Would I be right about that?
1: Absolutely. And look, we have to, we're, we've been alive long enough to understand how to suffer properly. That's what I always tell. (laughs) I like that. I I like that. I tell my kids that all the time. I'm like, you don't know anything. You know, you're 25 years old. What do you know about suffering? You know, and, and, and my son is a smart ass so he usually says well i I'm, I'm your son so i've suffered plenty so, <laughs> but um you know but you know there is this idea the thing that we have over our our younger competitors is we do know how to get through tough times and and we have to call on that and look normally in a race it boils down to three things hydration nutrition and attitude <laughs> You know, there, there are basic functions, uh, you know, the mechanical things of if we're calorie depleted or we dehydrate, dehydrated, then, you know, first things first, you know, cram a thousand calories in your body and drink as much as you can humanly consume. Yep. And so usually, your body will physically
0: work. Exactly. When you need it to. Usually
1: yeah. that's like putting oil in your car. You know, magically it will begin to function again. It might take 30 minutes. But if you, especially in an ultra, if you can just keep moving and consuming calories, you will magically feel better. But the third then is is to not let that that letdown, because very often we, of course, start races with goals, and a huge meltdown all of a sudden makes that goal maybe unattainable. You know, you don't you don't know, but if it's a hundred mile race and you're trying to break a certain time, or a or a fifty mile, or or a marathon. You know all of a sudden that goal that you trained so hard for is out the window. And so how do you respond? And in my view the right response is to use our experience to to understand that there is much to be accomplished in just getting across the finish line no matter what the time is and And very often the satisfaction gained from a slower time but knowing how hard we had to fight to get it is is far more satisfying than having a kick-ass race and a PR. PR is always fun, but I don't know. If I have to list off the top five races that really formed or events really formed who I am as an athlete, none of them are my fastest races.
0: They're probably all your hardest, toughest races, right?
1: Absolutely. They're the ones that I wanted to quit so freaking badly and and found a way just to trust the process and to just keep moving and and understanding that if I just keep moving, you know, I'm going to learn something. And, you know, I'm not going to learn anything from pulling the plug and coming up with you know, I am a salesman at heart, so I always say that we, we, all of us, we, you know, we make decisions emotionally, and in a race, in races, we still do that too. We make decisions emotionally, and then we justify them rationally. Oh well, I've got a race next week or two weeks from now, and you know, and so since it wasn't my day, I wanted to save myself. I'm sorry, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, that is total and complete bullshit. Right. Pardon me. I don't know if we curse That's on your okay. podcast, but, you know, I, I mean, it normally is just us selling ourselves on the fact that we, you know, that we don't want to feel the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And and it's usually a way out. And I think that the best way out is through. Yes. <laughs> keep, keep moving and, and you'll find all that you need.
0: That will be the most satisfying way out for sure. No doubt. So there may be people listening right now who of course would find inspiration in your story because who wouldn't but at the same time they may also think that well that you know this I couldn't do this I couldn't do what he does I couldn't run those distance I, I couldn't even do a marathon or a half marathon what advice would you give to someone who thinks that way
1: well I, and I totally appreciate that question and I think that they are wrong if you can run a 5k <laughs> you can run a 10k if you can run a 10k you can run a half marathon I mean it really is a I don't advise if you've only run a 5K entering a hundred miler. You know, it's not. It's probably not the unless, best choice unless,
0: unless it's by accident.
1: And you, you know. <laughs> there we go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> unless you're just not smart, like I. Am. And, <laughs> then go for it. <laughs> right. Then go for it. But I, I do think that, um, and the best thing someone can do is to get a plan, and and very often that does involve getting a coach. And I, I do think there's great power in getting a, a coach, whether that coach is a physical coach that's gonna tell you how far to run on Tuesdays and Thursdays or you know, what pace to run, that's very effective. But but a coach that can also tell you, you know, why you should be doing this and what the rewards are, what the value is and uh here's the here's a thing. We talk, we started this podcast talking about me as a kid. And when I was a kid, what I remember and this is I talk about this in the book early on. There's a there's a freedom that comes with running, right? And most of us who are over 40 remember, I'm not sure kids today necessarily know this. There's a freedom with getting home after school and running out the front door and running to your neighbor's house or getting on the bike and running. And I'm not sure that all that running happens with kids today. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't
0: know. But I remember it.
1: Yeah, but I think most of us listening to this, you know, do remember that feeling of freedom and how free and easy it was to run. So... Maybe somebody goes 25 years without running a step. They have a career, they're they're married, their life, whatever, and they want to get back into it now, and they see this as impossible. You're not going to feel the way you did when you were nine years old running out the front door because it's not that easy. You spent 25 years, you know, not running, and you're not going to have that same freedom feeling in the first week. But if you can just get started, and I highly recommend running walking programs, And, uh, this may be something that, that you coach, Robin. but, but guys like Jeff Galloway, I think are Mm -hmm. great at it, at getting people to understand that this is a lifestyle. This isn't a diet. This isn't something you're going to do for a week or a month just to get ready for one event. So the idea behind it is to build slowly. I'm a time runner. I'm a time athlete, not just running, cycling too. So what I mean by that is I don't believe in picking, you know, I'm going to go run 5 miles today or I'm going to go whatever. Personally, I find much more comfort in saying, "Okay, I have an hour that I could spare today." So I'm going to walk out my front door, I'm going to walk for 5 minutes, I'm going to start jogging for 5 minutes or however long I feel like. I'm going to walk, jog, walk, jog until I get the 30 minutes and then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to come home because That's what I have to spare today is that hour. And I think most people find that sort of approach much more achievable. And, you know, as a person works their way towards maybe their first half marathon, first of all, don't wonder if you can do it. There is no answer to that question until you get online, find a race that you want to do. Pay your entry fee and get out there and try it. You know, it's not going to kill you, even if you walk the whole thing. Correct. You know, and and the lessons you're going to learn along the way are I don't you know, I have friends that write me people that have become my friends through the years. I'm very easy to find online, so people write me all the time, and they, they talk about, you know, being last in their first half marathon. <laughs> and I'm like, man, they should give an award for that. You know? Right. And, you know, I think the barrier to entry is really, there's all, also this idea that I think people need to understand. First of all, we're, we're mostly self-centered beings, and nobody, as much as we think other people might be watching us, they're really not and yeah no yeah no kidding so put aside the um ego and your worry that you're gonna look bad or that you're you know all of that and just go out there and give it a shot
0: I love that advice that's that's the advice I would give and and honestly most of the athletes that have been on this show it's like just get out there and do it I mean I I didn't start running till 2012 I always said oh I'm not a runner I'll never run and then I did my first 5k in 2012 and and then you just keep going. You keep, you know, you add on, you do 10 K half marathon and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you, you actually start enjoying running. That's the fun thing that happens uh, is when you, you know, for a while you just enjoy the, how you feel when you're done running Um, and then eventually you actually start enjoying the actual act of running. And that's, that's sort of the fun switch that happened to me at least. And I, and I see it happen to so many people. So
1: you said it perfectly. I say all the time when I'm talking to audiences, I'm like, look, it's not running. I love It's stopping, you know, I don't, I don't know this whole runner's high thing. I don't know what people are talking about. I feel awesome when I finish.
0: That's right. And And you, and you've run more than most people. Yeah. And you still are like, Oh no, I, I just like how I feel when I'm done.
1: Look, and I, I consider myself to be a, a it's a it's a sort of a haughty title, but I'm a cultural explorer, you know, is what I like to think of. And I've run in more than 50 countries and I'm a destination runner. I love to go somewhere new and have a race to do. And, you know, I don't know if you run an ultra yet, but I'm there's not. this other. Well, so look, I'll encourage even you. There's this thing that happens when you go over a marathon people will ask you when you run a half marathon or a marathon or even a 10k what was your time and they have a reference point most people don't have any reference point for a 50k or a 50 miler like you know you could tell them you did it in five hours or 50 hours and they wouldn't know the difference yeah they're just blown away that you did it exactly yeah and here's the thing anything over a marathon really becomes um a thinking person's sport like you you have to plan your nutrition and your hydration and your, it's, it's a, it's a different animal and it's a lot more about body maintenance and about understanding your own body really well. And it is completely, as we discussed earlier, it's about adaptation because it's not about what's going to go wrong because something or or whether anything's going to go wrong because something is going to go wrong, (laughs) you know? And that is the, that is the fun. I mean, I try to relate it to businesses and to families, too. You know, when you're raising your kids or you're an entrepreneur and you go out and you start a business, you know, the the, the defining moments are the ones when you're not sure if you're going to make it. Yeah. And and the same is true in an ultra or any event, a marathon, too. But but with a marathon, you have a lot more people around you. Ultras tend to be smaller. Truly supportive events where everybody out there is is you're all in it together, you feel like you've gone to war together and and i I really encourage people to find events that are out of their their home area and make it a destination to go explore some new place
0: I love that and i and I want to i need to i, yeah. I yeah. I look at your life and I'm like, yeah, that's, I would love to do. To just explore go do the world it. You'll just, never
1: be ready for it. <laughs> that's right. Just, just, you know, right. And I say that and the
0: funny thing is I say that to everybody at no matter what length of race they're training for or kind of race. It's like, or even just to work out, even just to come and exercise. It's like, you don't wait till you're ready. You just do.
1: You just go do. Well, anybody who has kids understands, too, that you're never ready to have kids. You're never ready, but you learn along the way. Thank God they don't start off as teenagers. You know, you get a chance. (laughs) You get a chance to kind of figure it out.
0: That's right. So as someone who has literally run all over the globe, is there anything on your bucket list that you're still looking to do?
1: (sighs) Yes, indeed there is, and I appreciate you asking. And my, my it's a very deep bucket. So February of next year I am I have an event planned and I, I, I actually refer to it as five point eight and I'll explain why in a sec. But it's it's basically I'm gonna go from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the planet, land elevation, and I'm gonna end up about three and a half months later at the top of Mount Everest. Wow. And so You know, it's a it's a real adventure, but it's also a metaphor for, I think, all of us. You know, we we kind of all spend our lives going from our lowest places to the high points in our lives. And in my case, I'm going to do it both both literally and figuratively. So I'll I'm going to jump into the Dead Sea and I'm going to actually swim out and do a free dive to try to add a little bit of distance to the, to the lowest place on the planet.
0: Because why not?
1: Why not, exactly. Mostly I just want to make it harder for anybody else that wants to do it after me. So yes. um, I'll, I'll get back to shore and I'll begin running. And I'm going to run all the way across the Arabian Desert. Uh, it's a couple thousand miles across Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. And it includes several UNESCO World Heritage sites. And I'm going across something called the Empty Quarter in Saudi Arabia, which is just what it sounds like. And uh, when I reach the tip of Oman, I'm actually going to sail about a thousand miles across the Indian Ocean and uh, in land in Mumbai. And w- what is interesting about that is I, have, I am not a sailor. I, I don't know how to sail. And over this next six months, I'm going to be learning to sail. So I am taking (laughs) on something that is, uh, completely foreign to me where that's concerned. Um, when I reach shore in Mumbai, I'm going to get on a bike and actually cycle all the way to Northern, uh, Northwestern Nepal and, uh, and then all the way across Nepal to the base of Mount Everest and, Uh, from Everest Base Camp, I will climb like everyone else. And it'll be this time of year that I'll be on the mountain. And if things go according to plan, uh, somewhere around now, I will be up on Mount Everest on the top and uh, top of the world. And um, yeah, it's a project I've actually been planning for many years. And it's finally going to happen next year, beginning February 1st.
0: How exciting. And it's like... I'm listening to you talk about it. First of all, you talked about the interesting part is where you're going to have to learn to sail. I'm like, this whole thing is the interesting part. <laughs> um, at least to me, uh, but it's like you're creating your own version of a, like it's beyond a triathlon. It's like a pentathlon of your own. Yeah. You've got, you got running, you've got diving, swimming, sailing, biking, climbing all in one mega multi-month
1: event. Absolutely. Yeah. No, How I, I cool. love, I love that you put it that way. And I, you know what, I go back to the days of, um, some of the best suffering I ever did was in a race called the eco challenge. And many people on this podcast might remember eco challenge was these, these heinous 10 day adventure races where you do all these different sports as a team uh, with no sleeping and, you know, the jungle in Borneo and uh, the deserts of the Atacama and Chile and places like that. And this is, this is my own version of that. And I, I always tell people that we, we do get lulled into this idea that we all have always have to pay an entry fee and enter mm-hmm. someone else's adventure. And sometimes, you know, we can actually do our own and, and this is obviously, this is, this is one I've planned for years and it's, um, you know, it may not be a beginner's adventure, but there is a version of this, you know, for everybody where you can sit down with a map and a compass and actually say, okay, you know, the state that I live in, how, how long is it across my state? You know, and, and could I actually bike across it or bike and run across it or something like that? And, you know, I think most of the people listening here are intrigued by that. kind If you're listening to this podcast, you are intrigued by that kind of idea. Yeah. And I would
0: certainly hope so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And don't be afraid of it. You know, it's about planning and it's about, yeah, you got to have some support. And yeah. and usually there's somebody in your corner that wants to go out there and do it with you or or be your support team and be out there with you and. You know, people are always waiting for, I don't know what they're waiting for, especially if you're over, you know, if you're my age, if you're 55, you better not be waiting for anything.
0: Right. Yeah, you don't, you may not have the luxury of time to wait, so you may as well get yeah. out there and create your own adventure.
1: And get on with it. Yeah. And yeah, you don't yeah. have to do, you know, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with doing the, I don't even know what to call it. I was going to call it a geriatric bike tour. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean that to diminish geriatric bike tours, but you know, people don't, they just assume too often that they're still, that they're not qualified to be out there doing big adventures. And I think it's the exact opposite. I I think that people in their twenties are are the ones who aren't qualified. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're overqualified and, and, you know, we need to be out there uh, showing by example that uh, you definitely are never too old to be out there doing an adventure.
0: And that leads me into uh, one of my final questions for you. And I ask this of all my guests and maybe you've already said it because you've dropped a lot of seasoned athlete knowledge in this time that we've spent together. But before we go, do you have one parting piece of wisdom that you've learned in your competitive and your life journey, really that you'd like to share with our listeners? Can you narrow it down to one?
1: Yes, actually, I, you know, I can, and I think I have already said it, but I would like to say it again. And that is to welcome discomfort, like to actually seek out, you know, be intentional about your discomfort. Understand that when you enter an event uh, or when you choose an adventure, that the purpose is not to make it as easy as possible, possible, that the actual purpose is to create some sort of hardship and a challenge and something that you will be, whether anybody else is watching, whether you tell another soul about it. You are the one that knows that you got through that hard moment, and so I think finding something that that does challenge you in that way is is it's still what I'm seeking every single day, and I encourage other people to do that.
0: I and I can get behind it absolutely as an athlete, as a, a business owner that I am. Uh, I I just opened a gym, and so I understand. It's like I I could live a comfortable life or. I could seek out that challenge and hardship, and 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 seek comfort in that discomfort because that's where the true rewards come from. So I'm glad you shared that.
1: Thank you. No, and I, I I'm glad. You know, looking at your career, I know that you know the danger in talking to to me. Is that of course you may very well find yourself in an ultra marathon sometimes. So.
0: I might find myself in an <laughs> ultra marathon. I might find myself running up the state of California. There you go. You know, choosing. I, I. What really stuck in my head is sort of the choose your own adventure aspect of life. As a child of the '80s, I'm I'm very familiar with choose your own adventure books, and and so that's that's sort of what I got from you. It's like you create. The adventure in your life. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to pay an entry fee, although it's, it's, you know, it's nice to do that and, and have something on your calendar that you, you're committed to. But I like that you don't, you're not beholden to that. That, that you create adventures for yourself, and that's that's really my biggest takeaway. It's like ah, I should, I need to create some more adventures because why do I have to pay someone else when I can just yeah. n- make it for myself? So that that's a takeaway that I got from this conversation, and I and I'd love it if other people got that too.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I actually just saw this week that someone I don't even know, you know who it was uh, set a a new what they call fastest known time an FKT across the state of North care of, of uh, California, rather it was like 256 miles, I want to say, but I mean, mm-hmm. living where you live, Holy mm-hmm. cow. I mean, you, you get to run from either the ocean all the way out to the desert or from yep. depending on where you are or from the ocean to yeah. the mountains. And oh, yeah. man, I mean, and not just running, you could, you could do a, a run bike, paddle elliptigo that company elliptigo just sent me one of those about a month ago and i freaking love this thing (laughs) it's uh you know you can cross train your way across the across the state so
0: with all sorts of different terrain yeah right for sure and
1: invite invite me i'll come do it with you
0: all right when i decide to do it i'm giving you a call this is gonna happen
1: that would be (laughs) awesome
0: so charlie if somebody wants to learn more about you contact you uh seek out your book where can they do that
1: so the, the simplest thing to do is the catch-all uh, website. So it's just Ingle dot com, and I'm sure on your on your show notes or on your yeah. podcast they'll see my name spelling and everything from the book is available on you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all major booksellers. And my actual you know phone number and email is right there on my website. And I field tons of questions every day about addiction and addiction recovery about running, about taking on big adventures, uh, even about prison from time to time. So, uh, you know, if there's, if there's something that I can help with, I absolutely encourage people to reach out.
0: That's great. I love how accessible you are, because I I think there are a variety of populations of people that you can help. And I'm sure you have helped in your life. And that's just such a wonderful thing, you know, to be able to do and to be doing. So um, thank you for doing that.
1: Well, my final my final words of wisdom is always this. And that's it's, it's my philosophy to to keep it. You have to give it away. Yes. And, you know, accumulating knowledge and wisdom and experience and all of that stuff is great. But if you don't share it with other people, then what good are you doing? So,
0: yes. And that's why we're here today.
1: Absolutely. To to
0: give away some knowledge, to share some knowledge. I'm right there with you. So, Charlie, thank you so much for giving away knowledge and for being on the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. You have a truly one-of-a-kind story, uh, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today, and you're a clear inspiration for anybody who's listening. I absolutely look forward to following your continued adventures, especially next year. Uh, I, I can't wait to, to hear about you being at the top of Everest and conquering that challenge.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. It was truly my pleasure. I mean, I enjoyed it. You asked great questions, and uh, it was just a, an easy conversation, so thank you.
0: So I have a bit of an update on the adventures of Charlie Engel. Every year on July 23rd, Charlie celebrates his sober birthday, commemorating the day he got sober. In typical Charlie fashion, he celebrates by taking on a difficult physical endeavor. This year, in honor of 26 years of sobriety, Charlie embarked on a 26-hour run. He chose a three-mile loop around the Healing Transitions Recovery Center in Raleigh, North Carolina as a way to encourage locals to join in with him. About 300 people did show up. Some ran, some volunteered at the aid station, and some spectated. When all was said and done, Charlie logged 118 miles in his 26 hour sober birthday run. And that leads us to our top three takeaways from Charlie Engel. It was really hard to narrow it down to three from Charlie Engel, but I will do my best. Here goes. Number one Charlie said that the key to any race is hydration, nutrition, and attitude. Now, notice he didn't mention training. While important, if you do have the three things he mentioned locked down, hydration, nutrition, and attitude, it will go a long way to a successful race day. If you're missing any one of those, especially on a longer or more difficult race, you could be in trouble. So remember the big three, hydration, nutrition, and attitude. Number two, to quote Charlie, welcome and seek out discomfort. Be intentional about your discomfort. When you enter or choose an adventure, the purpose is not to make it as easy as possible. The actual purpose is to create some sort of hardship or challenge. That, my friends, is where the big growth happens and the amazing memories. And number three, Charlie talked about some huge adventurous plans that he has. If you listened to that and thought that you couldn't do such a thing, think again. As Charlie said, people assume that they're not qualified to be out there doing big adventures. We need to be out there leading by example that we are never too old to be doing an adventure. So I ask this of you, what is your next big adventure? Thanks again to Charlie Engel. Thank you for listening to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. The music you heard in this episode is from the supremely talented Jason Achilles. Learn more at jasonachilles.com. Do you know someone who would make a great guest on this show? Or do you have a unique and inspirational story to share? Shoot us an email, seasonedathlete at gmail.com. Check out our entire library of episodes and get to know our distinguished seasoned athlete alumni at seasonedathlete.me. And if you live in the Los Angeles area and are feeling super inspired to train like a seasoned athlete, visit RUTF sm.com and learn about how to train with me to help bring out the seasoned athlete in you now go out there and embrace your extraordinary my fellow seasoned athletes because you so can